0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thanks, Zach. I always get caught by surprise when you pray for me. Thank you. That's really sweet. I shouldn't be, but there you are. Well, um, if you are new or joining us, I'm Pastor Ronnie Garcia online. It's our custom here at Trinity to take a section of the Bible and to explain it. It's an ancient book, incredibly old. And so we constantly have to come to the scriptures asking, what relevance does it have for modern readers, right? Why should we take time to study this? And so we're going to do that this morning. And uh, we're going to continue that tradition or that custom in the book of Acts. If you'll remember, Acts is the story of the church and how it began and so what we've seen so far is that Jesus was resurrected and he was ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he said that when he was ascended that he would pour the spirit out. And so that happened at Pentecost. And then Peter preaches like the sermon of his life. This was like his Billy Graham moment, right? And it was like 3,000 people were saved that day. Now, when Peter preached that sermon, like the crux of it, it was a real finger pointer. He was like, listen, men of Jerusalem, you crucified him. You crucified the Savior. And yet there's hope. Believe and be baptized. And so 3,000 3, people were saved. And so our text this morning, is kind of like the morning after. Like what happens next? I mean, how did the church begin? It started with just like 11 men and a few women. Then it turned into like 120 Guys, and then it turned into 3,000, and it eventually changed the whole world. How did we get there? Well, the mission that God gave the early church, and it's important. They didn't make this up themselves. God gave them this mission. Uh, That mission has now been passed on to us. And so this morning, our text is a summary of what characterized the early church and how it should shape us. Now, why is this, um, before we begin and get into this text, why is this so significant? Well, nearly every story in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, is in, the, is in a context in which the people of God are a religious minority. They're always like the outliers. And, and of course, in the New Testament, Christians are not the main show in the Roman Empire, and they're learning how to live and flourish as religious minorities, Well, guess what? Who does that sound like? It sounds like us. The world has changed, Trinity Church. I mean, maybe the last century, uh, Christians might have had some place of tolerance in the United States, in the West, or so forth. But that day is gone. And in fact, if you were a Christian, if you're a Christian, you probably went from the sort of, at best, the odd but tolerable office Christian, maybe a little bit weird. Two, now what's wrong with the world? You are now what is wrong in the world. You're closed-minded, you're anti-intellectual, and so forth. We are now definitely a religious minority. And if that is hard for you to believe, if that is a difficult concept, just think about how hard it is for you to repost a message from Trinity Church on Facebook or Instagram. Why can't you just repost it? Why is that so cringy? Why are we always, uh, you know, curating our identities and, and not putting this fact that we belong to this community, this, these believers? It's because we're religious minorities, and the, and the world is real complex, isn't it? In our day and age, and it's increased globalism, we are interacting with ideas and Practices of a very diverse number of people, and we are hearing alternate stories about where meaning and purpose comes from in this life. And our schools and media and, and uh, cultural narratives have made it increasingly implausible but outright difficult to believe that God has acted in history just as the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches about what makes humans to thrive and flourish, like, just makes very little sense to our neighbors. We're often, at worst, even accused of being hateful. Now, this reality could feel really threatening that we are a religious minority, and people who are threatened become afraid, and people who are afraid become angry. But listen, when the world interacts with Christians, they should not find a fearful and angry people. Anger and fear is not the identity nor the culture of the people of God. Even if we are the religious minorities, they're to find something different. We're not just protecting our own interests, but we're actually sacrificing ourselves for our neighbors. We're not here just looking for heretics. We're not on a witch hunt. We're here looking for friends. Who, whom we, with whom we can share the love of Christ. We are to shine. We're to be a light, a city on a hill, offering shelter to the weary. That's what the church should be. That's what the church should be. That's it's not always what it is, right? It's not what it is. Tragically, ironically, when the church has forgotten this primary vocation, and it gives into grumpiness and fear, it becomes a miserable community that no one is attracted to, and why should they be? Thankfully, we have this picture of this early church that is beautiful, and it's hopeful, and that's what, that's what we want for ourselves. So this picture is a picture of the church, and it I want you to remember that it is born out of it, it is forged from the Holy Spirit, and so what does a church that's formed by the Holy Spirit look like? Well, Acts 2, our text this morning, is going to give us a summary. And the main word here to remember is unity. Unity. Now, there's four ways that the early church was unified. For you note-takers, they were unified in their learning. They were unified and united in their fellowship, in their worship, and their witness. So, four-point sermon for you (laughs) note-takers. United in learning, fellowship, worship, and witness. With that brief introduction, would you stand with me, take a copy of God's Word, or if you have a bulletin, let's give ourselves reverently and carefully to the very best part of the whole sermon. You can take a nap right after this, all right? Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers. The flowers even fade, but not God's word. It stands forever. May he bless it for you and for the preacher. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a pastor in Virginia, his name's Wade Bradshaw. He used to work for the Francis Schaeffer Institute. If you've ever read any Francis Schaeffer, he's just this terrific guy. But this, this pastor, uh, Wade Bradshaw, he tells his testimony. When he was a young man, he uh, was not a Christian. He picked up the Bible and he opened it to Mark chapter 1. And then he just began to read Mark chapter 1 as a non-Christian about 35 minutes, 40 minutes later, when he was in chapter 16, the end of Mark, he realized he'd become a Christian. He'd like given his life away just by reading the book of Mark. And that kind of encounter with God's word just left this incredibly, like, like an indelible mark on what, how he saw and understood the Bible itself. So he ends up becoming a pastor, and he used to pastor in a church in England, and there was this one pub that he would frequent, um, you know, frequent pretty regularly, and so he kind of knew all the staff at the pub. So one day he comes in, and the bartender barks off to him, and he says, hey, pastor, guess what I'm going to do? I am going to read the Bible. And so Wade Bradshaw, like just instinctually, was like, don't do it. Like, I did it once, and I never recovered from it. All kinds of things start to follow if you read it. Really, it is not safe to read that book. Like, he's just had this weird moment of like, you know, because of his own encounter with the Bible. Well, of course, the bartender does end up reading it. And uh, about a year later, he becomes a Christian and was baptized. And why is that? It's because there's this ancient and confusing beauty to the Bible. And when you first fall in love with Christ, you feverishly pour over the pages like a star-crossed lover reading a love letter, right? There's, There's excitement in it. That's exactly what happened to this new fledgling church. The very first thing that's described of them, look there in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Now, for them, the very first audience to receive, the, uh, to receive God's word, the apostles' teachings is literally the teachings that are coming from the mouth of the apostles, right? Because the apostles were still alive, right? The apostles, for those of you who may not know that, that language, are those disciples of Jesus Christ who are appointed by Christ to build and lead the very first churches, And so their teaching, the apostles' teaching was so important that they would write letters and they would send it to the far regions of the empire and churches would receive them. And they were received and esteemed as of scripture themselves, Old Testament and the apostles' letters. And and, and so the whole New Testament is really just a compendium of the apostles' teachings, these letters that were circulated because they were valued so highly. And so that body of teaching was the very core of what the early church believed and what they studied. They weren't studying self-help messages. It was just this body. Now, they understood that the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures pointed to Jesus. But now they're asking, how do the apostles' teaching unfold that fully? I mean, what does it mean that Jesus died on a cross Lots of people had died on crosses at the time. Why was this any different? It needed to be interpreted. What does it mean that he rose again? Why is that relevant to me? How then shall we live? How do we make this amazing story practical in our lives and integrate it? Well, this fledgling church, they poured over God's word. They were hungry for it. And it intertwined every single part of their lives. Now... When you first fall in love with Jesus, there is this eagerness, right, to read God's Word. But be warned, that eagerness will wane. And so what we have to do is we have to build these habits to sustain us. Don't be surprised when your eagerness to read the Bible wanes. Indeed, your eagerness for anything you love will wane. For instance, I love baseball. Nothing like a good losing streak, to kind of pour cold water on me, right? I love my wife. Nuts about her. Nothing like good World War III knockout brawl kind of cool down the affection, right? Everything wanes. That's the same for the scriptures. There's a lot of things that can pour cold water on your eagerness to swim in God's word. Maybe you think you already know what it says, right? Like a good pastor, I shove the Bible down my children's throats Kidding, at home, if you don't know me, that's just a joke. But they've read large portions of the scripture. And so I told Mike, I was like, Mike, I read this. And he's like, why would I do that? I already read it, right? <laughs> Get it? Uh, maybe, maybe you, um, instead of reading a lot of God's word, you read a lot of blogs and national news. And so you begin to actually be shaped by those things. And when you read the Bible, you feel like it's ethically primitive. And you feel maybe superior to God's word. Nothing like feeling superior to God's Word to make you not want to read it, right? Maybe people have actually used the Bible in your life to silence your really big and important questions with just pat answers instead of using the Bible to give space for these really big and complex questions of life. Well, Lots of things will keep us from regularly diving into the apostles' teachings, and that's how come we need one another, you guys. That's why, for instance, in this service, it is saturated with God's Word. If you've never noticed, the call to worship, the assurance of forgiveness. We give space to the Old Testament and the New Testament every single Sunday. We give space for theological reflection. This whole service is, is just pure Word, right? That's how come actually a few times a year, both in Advent and Lent, We give a reading plan to every single member so we can all read the Bible together. We're all reading the same passages together to be united in our learning. The early church was united in their devotion to the apostles' teaching, and so should we. That's got to be the core of all that we do. So first, they were united in their learning, giving themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they were also, we're now on the second point, united in fellowship. Uh, you got to remember that they weren't just um, students of the Bible, learning the Bible. They used the apostles' teachings to shape their common life together. Now, this is not an insignificant point. Now, you guys know that in my sermons, I am prone to make pop culture references that aren't suitable for all audiences, so be warned I'm going to do it again. But here we are. There a few years ago, there was a show that was all the rage called Breaking Bad. I don't know how edifying it is. Okay, I know it's not that edifying, but there we are. But uh, essentially, it's, um, it's actually just a fictitious story of like, this high school chemistry teacher who ends up being like a kingpin meth dealer right? And, uh, and it's kind of an expose on what theologians call the total depravity of man, all right? So like, see, there's theology even in Breaking Bad. But um, the main character is this guy named Walter White, and towards the end of the series, he finds himself all alone. So all the choices that he'd made, thinking that he was going to give himself and his family a better life, leads him ultimately to be quite alone and isolated, So at the end, he's living in this cabin, right, trying to evade being caught by law enforcement. So he has no human contact except for this one guy who will go into the woods to deliver supplies once a month. That's all the human contact he had, once a month just delivering this supply. And at one such visit, Walter looks at the guy who's delivering the stuff, and he says, hey, I will give you $1,000 if you will just spend one more hour with me. Like, the director crushed it. I mean, can you feel just the alienation in that offer? That is, like, deeply human. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, we are made in God's image, and we were made according to his design to be in community and fellowship with each other. In the early church, what we see in them is this fierce commitment To do life together. Go back to verse 42. So it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, in case you're tempted to think that that means that they were sipping coffee in the church lobby, it's far different. So that word fellowship in the Greek is this word koinonia. You might have heard it before. It's this really rich word to describe a holistic sharing of one's life with the other. It's like this divine togetherness. And you see a glimpse of what that actually means in verse 44 and 45. Look at there in your text again. And it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All right. Now, let's not be dumb, right? This isn't some sort of proto-communism where the government's reallocating resources. No, it's actually far worse than that. It's that these guys actually wanted to do it, right? They just, it was like this deep soul generosity that they wanted to do. Some were even liquidating their land. They were like, man, they had this land in their family for centuries, and they saw a need. And they're like, let me like, monetize this and help a brother out. And none of this was from compulsion, Right? It was just, it was just from the sense of unity and love. Let me just say real quickly, at Trinity, many of you guys are doing that. Like we don't, we keep this private and we don't publicize it, right? But you will see needs in the community and you'll say, hey, I want to help. What can I do? I'm there for you. That is happening here at Trinity. It's beautiful. But you know what's so cool? Is that the early church, they didn't just share their stuff. They shared their joys, and they shared their grief. Like, they were known to one another. How are we doing with this, Trinity? How are we doing with this? I mean, we have to, like, fight for this in a COVID world. Everything's a little bit harder. But do you open up? I mean, do you share your addictions, your longings, your failures, your successes, your worries? Do you share them? Are you known? Do you know why the early church shared so deeply? It's because it felt safe. It was safe. They thought, you know what? We're the ones who crucified the Savior, and the Savior came back for us. So why don't we imitate that? Let us, let us be healers and let us be compassionate. Let us be safe. And it really changed the whole community culture. It's crazy. It was safe to be known, warts and all. How are we doing in our, in our fellowship? Can I tell you really good news? You don't have to pay $1,000 for an extra hour with a friend. You have the church. It's safe to be known. They were united in their, work, in their fellowship. All right, so what we've seen is they were united in their learning, right? They were united in their fellowship, Third point, they were united in their worship. Now, when the Bible talks about worship, everyone, it's never talking about a genre of music, all right? Worship, listen, is the formative activity of every believer communally, whereby we are enjoying God by exalting him, the exaltation of his worth and of his supreme value in our lives and in the world, and so the early church, who was like formed by the Holy Spirit's poured out. They were absolutely united by worship. But their worship is probably more nuanced than what you think. No smoke machines here, right? Let me set this up because we are living in a new day. Do you guys know the band Mumford and Sons, right? They're kind of this British folk rock band. They're super angsty. And a lot of their songs are, um, have like these spiritual themes. Well, like their parents were uh, Christian missionaries. So um, Marcus Mumford did an interview with Rolling Stone. And, um, and so Brian Hyatt, the guy doing the interview, he asked Mark Marcus if he still considers himself a Christian. And this is how Marcus Mumford responds. He says, I don't really like that word. It comes with so much baggage. So no, I wouldn't call myself a Christian I think the word just conjures up all these religious images that I don't really like. I have my personal views about the person of Jesus and who he was, but I've kind of separated myself from the culture of Christianity. Now, what we see there in Marcus Mumford's words is actually pretty representative of what we're seeing in the culture at large. And it's this idea that we can grow in our affection for Jesus while at the same time grow in our distaste for the church. And so tons of young people are just hitting eject on the church. And why is this happening? Why, why is everyone hitting eject on the church? Why? Can I suggest to you that it is culture war fatigue? It's culture war fatigue. Like Young people hate that the church is about style and Preferences and, and politics. Young people hate that it's known, that the church is known by what it is against as opposed to what it's for. They hate that the church is untethered to anything historical and, and reduced to the self help me centered gospel, right? They hate that the church feels like a business or a show instead of deep spiritual formation. I mention this because this is really important in this text. Because Luke, the author of Acts, gives us a very diverse picture of the, of, the, of the worship that was unifying them. Look there again in verse 42. So they divided themselves to the, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. And then look, it says, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, do you notice all those like definite articles, right? It's not just that they were devoted to praying. They were devoted to the prayers, The breaking of bread. So all the commentaries will tell you that the worship of the early church went through the spiritual disciplines that were highly ritualistic and structured. And that they were all practiced together. So the breaking of bread is what? It's the Eucharist. It's the Lord's Supper. The prayers, not praying, but the prayers were these known structured prayers that all the people prayed together and they were offered at certain set times in the temple. And that's how come when the Lord, when the early church started doing the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer together, it felt real, it felt normal to them. That's what they'd always done. Now, when I say and talk about these sort of ritualistic aspects, I don't know if that feels lifeless to you. But you got to remember that these guys were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? We're still in chapter 2 of Acts. The Holy Spirit just came upon them. And so far from hitting eject on the church, I mean, these guys were running to the community. Look Look what it says in verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together, that word again, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. So what we see here are spirit-filled Christians going to the temple together. But their church life didn't just stop at the temple. It was in their homes too. So the worship, right, did not stop. Notice in verse 46 that it says, this time, not the breaking of bread. It says that we're breaking bread in the homes, right? So this time they're, they're, they're eating together. They're celebrating together, Right? This means that the worship that united them in the temple also took them home. Worship happened where life happened, right? It wasn't just this one sector of their life. Worship happened where life happened. And their glad and generous hearts were the spontaneous fruit of their worship. So their spirit-filled worship had structure, but it also had deep heart spontaneity. It was both, right? Can y'all see that? It was both. And far from trying to distance themselves from the people who followed Jesus, they're totally united to one another, right? Have you ever heard that saying that you don't want to see the inside of a sausage factory or a church because it kind of ruins the experience? You ever heard that saying, right? Well, let me just say that when people looked at the inner workings of of the church... They weren't put off. They were smitten, right? Although they were this religious minority, their lives were really compelling to their neighbors, not not by being grumpy, not by being heresy police, but just the gladness of their worship. And so non-believing people who otherwise thought that Christians were silly and uneducated— are now those same people are having to explain why the quality of their worship and their love together was marked by such gladness and generosity and hope hope that they wanted for themselves the unity of the worship of their worship is what fueled this fledgling community and let me just say y'all Trinity Church we what we've tried to model here it's incredibly imperfect. It is. We're a mess because it starts with the pastor who is imperfect and a mess. But that's what we're trying to do. We want structure, right? We want spiritual formation, but we ought, and spontaneity, right? We want rich worship in church service and home groups. We want space for others to see us from the inside out. We want people to see us vulnerable and needing God. Together, That's why we do what we do and have the ministries that we have. We're trying to pattern ourselves after this. All right. Let me quickly summarize where we've been so far. We are studying in Acts the birth of the church. It was built on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when he ascends, he, the Spirit's poured out, and he tells his disciples to advance the kingdom, Right? Now, this group, this early church, they were massively a religious minority. They were the weirdos. Their culture found their beliefs almost impossible to believe. And yet, there was something totally captivating about them. They weren't fearful or angry. You would expect them to be fearful and angry, but they weren't. There was something else. There was a gladness and a generosity to them. So, how did they sustain their joy? In such a hostile context. How did they do it? It was in their unity. They're united in their learning. They're united in their fellowship. They're united in worship. And lastly, and I'm going to make this last point quick. They were united in their witness. So in verse 43, look at your text. It says, awe came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay, awe That's kind of an old word. We don't use that word real often. Awe is is like the sensation where you're like, hey, what's happening to me? Like, I feel totally out of control, but I'm kind of like it, (laughs) right? Right? There's a rest in my soul that wasn't there before. And then in verse 47, it continues that sentiment, and it describes this young church saying, look there, 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Everyone's looking at the weirdos and liking it, right? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, being saved. If that's not Christian jargon, like I don't know what is. Being saved. Saved from what? I didn't know that I was lost. I don't feel lost, right? Well, I suppose the negative way of answering that question is saved and liberated, liberated from the haunting meaningless of our life. Listen, if the sun's going to go cold one day and all life on earth is going to end and nothing will be remembered, why does anything matter? You're liberated, saved from that. You're saved and liberated from the slavery of death. Dying stings, but it's not Paralyzing. You're liberated from God's righteous and perfect and good judgment towards evildoers, of which we are numbered. We're saved from really bad things, right? I think we get that. But listen carefully. Guilt and fear are horrible motivators. They're horrible motivators. We're not only saved from bad things. We're saved into a generous community where strangers become brothers and sisters. We're saved into a community of purpose and meaning and grace and being known where our theology most certainly can be heard, but it can be seen and felt and even tasted and enjoyed at our tables, you see. Have you ever had that deep sense of awe come over you? Do you want to get back to that place? Do you want to get back there? I want you just to reach back into the simplicity of God's grace. When I say God's grace, what I'm saying is Christ did it all for you, man. He did everything you're supposed to do, And, and He did it for you not because you're morally virtuous or superior to anyone else. He did it for you just because He's so, so kind to weary and numb pilgrims. He's just so kind to us. He loves you, not because of something you've done, but for something in his own heart that's unbreakable. And when you can believe that, all this Jesus stuff isn't just something in your head. Jesus becomes precious to you. And when an entire community begins to find Jesus precious and finds Jesus supremely precious, then they will feel really united. And then you can know for sure that the Spirit is working. Oh, Trinity, this is what I want for myself. This is what I want for us. (laughs) A safe place to be united and to enjoy the Lord, together. Would you pray with me? Father, oh Lord, I confess that being a religious minority has made me fearful and even angry. And I'm all the bad things that I described in my sermon today. Have mercy. Do a new work in us. Surprise us. May the gladness of our worship, the gladness of the conversation at our tables, the hospitality that we offer to the weary renew our fervor for you and bring others to you. We want to see more and more people, not just know Jesus, but find him precious. We pray this in his name. Amen.